Hello and welcome to our second episode of Equal Justice Podcast, where we seek truth, value tradition, and fight to defend the foundations of a moral and just society. Uh, my name is Jacob Daniel. Uh, in this podcast, our goal would be to articulate a truly Christian political stance from which to approach the present order of society. And to do that, I'm honored to have with us Gabriel Wrench, joining us all the way from Moscow, Idaho. Welcome to the show, Gabe. Thank you for having me, Jacob. Appreciate it. Can I call you Gabe? That, that is fine. The joke, the running joke is it depends on if you're mad or mean or not. You know, Gabe or Gabriel. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so Gabriel is a, a, a media and marketing consultant. He's a co-founder of Fight Love Feast Network and one of the hosts of cross-politic podcast. You're going to learn more about that in a while. Um, he serves on various nonprofit boards. Uh, uh, not only that, Gabe is also running for the board of Leta County Commissioner. I hope I pronounced it correctly. Right. He lives okay. on what he calls a small 10-acre farm uh, with his wife, three children, a couple horses, one dog, and two outdoor cats. What's with the outdoor cats, uh, Gabe? Why aren't they allowed inside? I, I don't let them inside, man. <laughs> <laughs> there must be a reason for it. Well, I, I'm actually allergic, but uh, I, I also um, prefer cats being outside, even if I wasn't allergic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so please share a little bit uh, more about yourself, uh, your calling, and how that grew into cross-politic, and also uh, your motivation to run for the county commissioner. Yeah, okay. I uh, actually grew up in, I was born and raised in Texas. Uh, grew up in, in Dallas for um, through high school. And uh, uh, my dad was an elder in the Presbyterian Church, the PCA Church. Uh, we were in Tyler, Texas a little bit, if anybody knows their history of kind of the reconstruction movement. Yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, so uh, David Chilton, uh, Ray Sutton, uh, you know, Gary North, uh, Jim Jordan. Well, that was, we were, we were there. My sister was born in that town when all that was going on. So we were friends with, with all of them. I'm, I'm still friends with, uh, uh, the Chilton kids, um, who are now obviously grown up adults now. And, uh, anyways, in, uh, we, 83, we moved to Dallas, Texas, and my dad was a pipe fitter at Texas Instruments. And so he's a, a hard working uh, father. We went to a classical Christian school. Hmm. in Dallas, Texas. And then I'm take, leaving out some of the details, but we moved to New Mexico and then back to Texas. And then my, after my senior year in high school, my dad moved the family to Eugene, Oregon, where uh, he ended up working for Hyundai Semiconductor. So that was uh, kind of dad uprooted us after I graduated high school and ended up in this. And Eugene is just an odd place. I'll tell you that right now. Um, in Texas, you know, it's like, I, we went from cowboys and Indians to VW buses and hippies. That's, that's the <laughs> cultural chasm that I had to cross when I moved to Eugene, Oregon. I did not fit in there. I remember the first Saturday market in Eugene, Oregon, walking around. And, and it, it, I mean, it is hippie central. Like women don't shave their legs or armpits. I mean, I remember seeing this all like and just like trying to process it as, a, <laughs> as someone who grew up in conservative Texas and, and in this liberal town. And so after a, uh, uh, Eugene, I got recruited to play basketball at a college down in California. So I went down to California uh, and played basketball for a couple years in California. Where in and California? Then, yeah. So I was in uh, the North Bay area at a community college called Solano Community College, right in the Fairfield, Vacaville area. Yeah. I, I got sent down by University of Oregon um, as a uh, as a as a, uh, a a kid who needed to put muscle on himself and kid who needed to uh, put some ex basketball experience on himself. Yeah. And the University of Oregon took, took a chance on me and sent me down there. So uh, after, man, I, and I played basketball all my life since I was like 12 years old. I played organized basketball. So it was such a huge part of my life. And, and by the time I was in college, I wanted to kind of go big, go Division One after my time at the community college and Juco ball. Uh, and, you know, basically I, I didn't have the stats or I, I really wasn't good enough to go Division One um, after my sophomore year. And, so I took two years off and I went to Colorado and worked, had some friends there, just kind of did construction and built some homes and kind of learned that trade. And then my brother um, 
during that time, he's two years older than me. He moved from Oregon to Moscow, Idaho, which is the hometown I live mm-hmm. in now, to go to New St. Andrews College. And then, you know, it was, it was kind of funny because uh, growing up in Texas, everyone's a Christian. Uh, you know, it's that Southern Christianity, very, yeah. uh, w- which comes with its strengths and mm-hmm. it comes with its, uh, you know, problems, you know, because you, you, you are very much not aware of your, your, your faith is becoming lukewarm and you don't really know it. My yeah. whole family in Texas, we were all Christians. Um, we never left the faith, but I also, when we moved to Oregon, I think that was the first time I ever met an atheist. I mean, like you, you, mm-hmm. really a very different environment, church environment, and everything. And that, that began to kind of wake up my faith. Um, yeah. I remember in Eugene, Oregon, that was the first place where I really I think prayed and read the Bible like I meant it or like I really needed to learn about God and who he was and, and the kind of God he was. Uh, you know, when I, when you run into your first atheist, it's, it, it, it's a little culture shock in, mm-hmm. in, in your faith. So in Eugene, Oregon, I remember kind of that experience happening and it was a good experience for my whole family. Uh, I think we kind of all at various levels started to have a spiritual awakening in Eugene, Oregon. And when I went down to, California to play basketball. The college down there is my first time out of the house, my first time living on my own. And I was, uh, you know, my roommates were my teammates. Uh, and, and, and college basketball, I mean, college sports is really, uh, the whole idea of a, a um, student athlete is really mm-hmm. silly because the athletes get away with everything. Um, I went to a junior college and I got away with everything. And it was, you know, there's hardly anything at stake there and you're still getting away with all sorts yeah. of stuff. But I remember the first night, I remember driving down in the U-Haul with one of my teammates, picking up another teammate on the way down there. We move into our apartment, and I remember we, uh, unloading the U-Haul at 2 in the morning and uh, sitting in bed. I mean, we're going to bed. It's like 2 or 3 in the morning, and it's Saturday night, and Sunday's the next morning. And I remember going to bed and saying, you know, I, if I don't go up, get up and go to church tomorrow, um, I'm going to lose my faith here in California. Hmm. It, it felt it felt that real, that weighty of a decision. Of course, you know, was I going to lose my faith, you know, the day after yeah. I get to California? No, but it, but it's such a weighty decision. Like I'm uh, either I'm going to own my parents' faith, own my Christian faith that my parents mm-hmm. taught me and take it on and, and own my relationship with God, or I'm going to slowly abandon it over time if I don't go to church tomorrow. So that's the weight of that. Decision. I remember getting up, this is before anyone had iPhones, Google maps. This is back in 1998. And, uh, you know, I had no, I think I had a, flip cell phone or something, whatever I yep. had back then. And just, just driving around, I had no phone book. I had no idea. I just drove around town to look for a church. And I found this, um, these brothers, I'll never forget the church, Temple Baptist church, all black church. I, I walk in, I'm the only white guy. Hmm. And, and it, it is an old school brotherhood, you know, Temple Baptist church is fantastic. I loved worshiping there. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was older congregations. There weren't any really anybody there my age. Uh, and so I uh, had a great time and it, it felt when I remember just sitting down in the pews, I was like, yes, these are my people. Yeah. Um, um, I, 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 I needed to do this. So, uh, from that experience, you know, so I, I, I played two years of ball down there and, and, you know, I started to own my faith, but I also, it was kind of weird because I started to own my faith in a way I never had before, hmm. but I also started doing compromising things, making decisions. This will come into later when we talk about cross politics, but I, yeah. but I started making decisions without really having a Bible verse to kind of base that decision off of, Hmm. you know, like I pierced my ear and just did some, some silly things that were, uh, that weren't really thought through theologically. Um, and so by the time my my brother, you know, came to Moscow, came to New St. Andrews college and he started challenging me on these things. Like, why'd you, why'd you, you know, give me a Bible verse. Why'd you Hmm. do that? Just give me a Bible verse. I don't care what Bible, you know, you know, make it a good logical connection to scriptures on why you do these kind of things. So, that was really good. I think in Oregon, God kind of started to awaken my family. And then in California, I think God started to, uh, uh, teach me to own my faith and, 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 you know, start, start to carry that cross of Christ, you know, uh, like you should, like a hmm. Christian should and not abandon it. And, um, I was like the only virgin on my basketball team. All my teammates were trying to get me to smoke weed party, all these things. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't perfect in all of it, but, um, uh, you know, God kept me from a lot of major sin being a student athlete. Again, mm-hmm. you get everything thrown on you. You were and, kind of uh, culturally so God, abnormal. Very, very. And mm-hmm. I remember, I mean, going on, 
you know, traveling with my team, they'd always focus their conversation on me because they couldn't believe some of my, my, uh, uh, faithful, my faithful actions and my faithful uh, principles yeah. that I was standing on, even though I was also in some small ways abandoning some of those principles in small ways, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which could lead to big ways down the road. But God was kind. He preserved me and my faith in California. And then by the time I moved, moved to Moscow, uh, God started putting a lot of meat on my bones. And this was in 2002. So okay. that's kind of my, my growing up uh, situation with, with, with at home. I had a faithful mom and dad. Uh, they taught us, you know, always, I, I've always known Jesus. I never had a major uh, conversion experience. I think I did have uh, at times, you know, C.S. Lewis says um, regarding a conversion experience, he says, you never know exactly what time the sun rises. Hmm. And in the same way, I think that's been, you know, the sun's been rising on my life by the grace of God over, you know, 40 and 41 years now. Yeah. And, you know, it, and you founded so. Cross-Politic. Uh, what is Cross-Politic? Uh, what is your vision? Yeah, so um, after I graduated, yeah, this is actually, after I graduated college in 2005, I went to work for an economic firm, worked for about 10 to 12 years there. Uh, I went through my, or my church has a pastoral training program called Greyfriars Hall. I went through that. Um, I pretty much finished it except for uh, the philosophy of ministry papers and a couple other papers I, need to, I needed, I haven't finished. Uh, life kind of got a hold of me by my third year at my ministerial program. Uh, I, we started having kids and, and so I, I'd accomplished a lot through the ministerial program and, but needed to put a hold on that. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, started raising a family, providing for my family. And then in 2015, 2016, I left my company, uh, my economics firm that I'd worked with for 12 years and, and then started my own consulting public relations media practice that you read off in the bio. Mm-hmm. And that same, that same, uh, January, January, 2016, I started cross. Well, I started what later became cross politic and, and cross politic is, is my, my podcast TV show. We're on direct TV and Xfinity. It's a, it's a Jesus is Lord over politics show. And mm. the reason why I started it, because I think the church for a long time had not been discipling its congregation well on how to apply the gospel to politics and how to apply every area of our life to politics and, 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 and how the lordship of Jesus is overall and specifically, I keep saying politics, because mm-hmm. the church, I think for a long time, had not been discipling its people, her people very well in, in the realm of how the gospel, how the Bible is over politics and how the Bible applies to politics. So that's what that's yeah. how cross-politics got started in 2016 uh, in uh, a I did a couple interviews by myself. So I, I, I started, uh, let me back up here real quick. This is kind of funny. I back in about three months before I was like, you know, I, I want to do something that my, that no one in my church is doing. Uh, you know, my church uh, has a great preaching ministry. My church has a great family ministry. My church has a great literature ministry through mm-hmm. Canon press. My church is just, God's blessed. There's a lot of gifted guys and, and men in my church. And so I kind of looked around. I serve as a deacon. I'm also a deacon at my mm-hmm. church. So I looked around and I said, okay, what, what is not being done that I might have a gift uh, uh, to, to bring to the table? What is not being done that I could do? And no one was radio. We didn't have a radio broadcast. We didn't have a podcast. We didn't have any of that. So I, I started applying to radio stations. I would call them up, you mm-hmm. know, local radio stations to start with, you know, those nonprofit local radio stations. I call them up and say, hey, I'm starting a radio program. Uh, would love an hour slot on your on your on your network or on your on your program, and they'd be like, "Oh yes, we got tons of slots open. Please, you know, this is a Moscow, Idaho, nonprofit, <laughs> local radio program. You know, and and so they were very welcoming in the beginning. But then I would submit. They'd give me the application. I would submit the application, and and my show was basically, you know, Jesus is Lord over politics. Mm. You know? <laughs> wow. Then I'd, I would submit it. I would mail it in, and then I wouldn't hear from them. Yeah, they just go dark. They they were all excited about me being excited about getting on on the radio and hosting a show, and then they just go silent. So after about three radio stations going dark on me, I realized that um, uh, God had not uh, opened that door, and so I, I started looking around. And I was like, "Well, pod, I can podcast. I mean, anybody can start a podcast in their mom's basement, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what that's one of the cool things about podcasting. Mm-hmm. Anybody can start one." And, and, and not only the radio stations I was looking at, 
they only had like an eight mile reach around my town. Mm. You know, podcasting, you can be in your, you know, in your basement and be broadcast to people in Australia and Indonesia and all. Yeah. You know, I've uh, my friends, Marcus Pittman, uh, he's compared podcasting to like the Gutenberg 2.0, like the Gutenberg 2.0, because the Gutenberg press came in and allowed for the mass production of scriptures. Yeah. That's right. Change change the world. And and allowed for the mass production of scriptures. And and no one, uh, no government, no church, no one could could quash that. No one could stop that in the same way, at least right now, podcasting is kind of that same thing. I can broadcast in our studio. I'm in my studio now, not in the basement anymore. We started off in a piano shop and in my house and now mm-hmm. we're in a real studio. Um, but I can broadcast from my studio to all people all over the world in Austria, uh, Austria Australia, yeah. Indonesia. Um, our, our listenership, obviously we have a, a large listenership in the U.S., but also Canada, U.K., Australia, New Zealand, uh, uh, and, and Mexico are probably our top five or six yeah. countries. So, um, Gabe, I, I believe this had been uh, the motivation behind uh, you running for county commissioner as well. So let me ask you this. Um, um, how do you as a Christian define uh, politics and governance? Is there a uniquely Christian way of looking at politics which is different from the secular understanding of it? Uh, do we have any biblical mandate to engage in politics? Yeah, yeah. I, I like to start this question um, when talking about how God defines the role of government, how God defines the role of civil government, family government, and, and church government. Because once mm-hmm. we kind of see those categories clearly in Scripture, then we can better understand how the Word of God might apply to family government or the Word of God can apply to, to, to uh, civil government or church government and so forth. So. Um, the Bible in, in, in Scripture, and this is actually, you know, if your audience knows who Abraham Kuyper is, Abraham Kuyper yeah. uh, kind of coined the terminology sphere sovereignty, hmm. meaning that, that there are spheres of sovereignty that God has defined, that God has given to us. So in Scriptures, you find three governments that are created by God, and they all report to God. The first government is obviously family government. And of course, you have, uh, I, I don't want to reject the role and responsibility of a particular individual, hmm. um, you know, because I'm individually responsible for my sin, I'm individually responsible for my duties and tasks that God's put for me. But in terms of, like, like government structure and organization, God's given us three governments. You have family government, church government, and civil government. You see the creation of family government, obviously, in Genesis chapter 1, Ephesians 5. You see the creation of, of civil government, and, uh, you know, kind of throughout uh, the, the Pentateuch, kind of the formation of, of the, um, you know, Israel was a Christian nation. So it's, it's a little different in how, uh, uh, well, I'll get there. I'll get there in a minute. But you see the formation of civil government kind of throughout the Old Testament and then into the New Testament with Romans 13. We always peg hmm. kind of, uh, you know, God's given the government, God defines the government as the bearer of the sword. To yeah. punish evildoers who good to, to those who do who are doing good, and then lastly, you have the formation of the church government. Of course, you see the formation of the church government kind of kind of uh, go throughout uh, the Old Testament. But then you also see, you know, Matthew eighteen would be a good text to maybe kind of peg uh, church government into church discipline. Uh, uh, Matthew chapter five: the church is a city on a hill, and so you have kind of these these governmental structures that God has given us, and then mm-hmm. they all. This is why I like. I like Abraham Kuyper's terminology because you know, they're all various spheres. You know, there's circles, and of course, there's there's overlap in those circles, and and when it comes to certain issues or certain things that happen in a society, hmm. and the reason why it's important to start talking about, I think, how God defines government, how God defines civil government, is because God has given certain duties to the civil government that He's not given to the church. He's given certain duties to the family government. That he's not given to the civil government. He's getting, you know, so once we kind of create the, the friendly fences, you know, friendly fences make good neighbors kind of uh, definitions, that helps us better understand how does the Bible apply here, how does the Bible apply over here, mm-hmm. and everything. So why do you think we I have, to, yeah, go ahead. why do you think that we have lost uh, this definition or understanding of the structure of government? What has happened in our yeah. culture that we have lost it and it has become so contentious? I think two two big things have happened um, that we've kind of lost uh, this understanding. 
One is, I think, and a lot of people might have a problem with this, but I think it's really true, is that the church is largely illiterate when it comes to the scriptures. You know, when's the last time, uh, you know, people in your congregation, uh, is your screen's breaking up a little bit. Is my audio coming through? It is, yes. Okay, great. When is the last time, you know, people in your church or, or, or um, people in your community or the church has been encouraged to read the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation? You know, uh, get into it. Read the scriptures. Get saturated. Feast on God's word. And, uh, but because we don't do it or we just read one chapter a day or something like that, uh, we really aren't as literate as we need to be. And there's always, you know, uh, the Barna Research Institute puts out surveys all the time. And, and mm-hmm. just a recent survey that came out, it said that that 20% or 30%, I think it's 20 or 30% of evangelicals, as defined by Barna in their research, uh, believe that gender can be a fluid concept. Hmm. <laughs> you know, 20%. You know, that's because we, we, we don't read our scripture. So I think, I think um, that's a big issue. I think, secondly, I think largely our pastors in the church are not discipling and shepherding well. Hmm. I, I think our pastors are largely cowards in the pews, um, and, and excuse me, in the pulpit, and not strong and courageous in the pulpit. And so I think a mix of kind of the illiteracy in the church and um, a lack of leadership from the pulpit is what has created kind of this uh, this um, black hole of, of understanding of how God has, you know, d- defined some basic, this should be basic doctrine in the church hmm. uh, and everything. And so Westminster Confession covers this. I mean, this is not stuff that hasn't been thought out by theo- theologians. Yeah. Uh, would you say that a theocracy is an inescapable concept when it comes to politics? And um, uh, people might object and say that there is too much of religion in the government. We don't need it. Right. Um, do you think that's a reasonable um, question that we, we have nothing to do with? Uh, we shouldn't be seeing government as a theocratic system. Uh, Jacob, you want to repeat that? It, it, it broke up on me. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I, w- I was asking, um, do you think it's um, like theocracy? Is it an inescapable concept uh, when we talk about politics? Uh, you know, uh, is the political system that we're talking about, is it theocratic in nature, um, given that it has become so contentious among people, uh, a topic uh, among them? Uh, would you say that the, the objection that people raise in terms of keeping religion out of government, is that a valid question at all? Yeah, well, I mean, as Christians, we obviously want everyone to believe in Jesus. So there's this basic evangelical desire that Christians have for the world. So I, I would love for President Trump to bow his knee to Christ and repent of his sins and believe in Jesus. So same mm-hmm. thing for Barack Obama. Same thing. So I want everyone to be a Christian. Um, it, uh, and, and so there's this basic evangelical gospel desire there. Now, secondly, um, if God has created everything, uh, God has created all governments, mm-hmm. all family government, church government, civil government, um, and so forth. Well, then all those governments report should report to God. You know, Russia um, should report to God. Vladimir mm-hmm. Putin is going to report to God on the last day. Absolutely. And, and so if we understand the relationship between who God is and his creation, then there's also this kind of, you know, natural, uh, there should be this natural understanding that, of course, the government is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now, part of what has, has happened here, particularly, in, this is particularly in the United States is that we've believed in this false notion of the separation between church and government, right? Between mm-hmm. church and state, okay? And, and that, the, to, first of all, there is no, you cannot find the doctrine of the separation of church and state in the Constitution. Hmm. You can't. It's not there. That language was in a letter written by Thomas Jefferson, and that, that, that letter has been co-opted to be some, to have some sort of constitutional bearing on how we view the Constitution. Hmm. So when uh, now what you can find in the Constitution in the First Amendment is a separation of federal government and religion. So right, Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of religion. Right, that's the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law. So the Congress, who constantly makes laws regarding the establishment of religion, is actually the one organization who cannot 
and is constitutionally bound not to make laws regarding the establishment of religion. Hmm. When the Constitution was ratified in 1787, nine out of the 13 states that you know, were forming the Union, nine out of 13 states um, had established statewide religions. Yeah. So the whole, the whole concept of separation of church and state wasn't there. You know, you had um, Massachusetts, who I think was the Congregationalist, and they, in New York was... Um, you know, the Methodists or, or whatever they were. So they had, and, and there was no conflict there. Hmm. Massachusetts could do whatever they want and could do whatever they want. If there was established religion at the federal level, which the founders fled from in, in Great Britain, then you have a conflict. If, if, let's say, the federal level had a Presbyterian denomination, well, that all of a sudden conflicts with the state of Massachusetts, the state of New York, and yeah. so forth, um, and everything. So the whole, so I think we get caught up as Christians. We get kind of tangled and ensnared thinking that, Hey, there should be a separation of church and state. The Constitution says there is, uh, but but it's but it's but it's not not present. Not yeah, uh, I think we have somehow bought into this idea that when we talk about politics, there is somehow um, there is something called civil neutrality, which does not exist. There is no civil uh, civil neutrality. However. Uh, how can we also avoid creating a civil religion? You talked about you know, your experience growing up in Texas and people are so, where religion and politics is so much intertwined that people tend to worship politics or depend more on salvation through politician kind of idea where create a civil religion. How, and also, um, yeah. one of my concerns is that how can we avoid let people use Christianity uh, for the sake of making good citizens, for the sake of the state, and rather than for the sake of God. Being good citizen is God's yeah. idea. So how can we actually uh, prevent this? Yeah. I, I think one of the um, being principled Christians is I think what keeps us from getting all gummed up with the with the church being the state or the state being the church or the family trying to act like the state or trying to take over it, having those fam uh, friendly family fence kind of definitions is really helpful. Hmm. So it's not that the civil government's job is not to preach the gospel, it's not to evangelize. It's not to, you know, as, as where the argument generally goes is to force people to become Christians yeah. or, or, you know, that's where the argument eventually goes. Uh, the the civil government's job is not to educate children. That's mm. that's the family's job, right? Um, the civil government's job is to enact the sword and to keep the peace. That that, that is the the fundamental baseline definition of what God has given the civil government. So what happens is uh, which when you get, which does uh, not you know, require yeah, which does not require unilateral obedience in all cases. If, if the state is not uh, uh, practical. Uh, confining it within that jurisdiction, uh, there'll be a role that Christians would have in terms of how they would engage with their civil magistrates, right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And so now Christians know how to participate properly in the civil sphere. If, if you become president, or let's say you become governor of your state, hmm. which is going to be impossible for you in California, but if you become governor of your state, well, your, your job is not to force everyone to be Christian. You know, your job is to make sure the state is functioning the way God has given it and to, you know, bring justice and bring peace. And, and, and so, and of course, you, you know, the civil government should, should welcome a relationship with the church. The civil government should welcome relationships with family. You know, it's like uh, uh, all that, all those three spheres should be working with each other. That's what creates a good society. That's hmm. what creates a good culture. Yeah. Uh, so, would you uh, agree that we need to have more of religious liberty? Because I think what religious liberty can do is establish generic deity in our culture, making basically making a claim that all religions are same, and therefore people must have uh, the freedom to practice whatever religion they want to, and uh, basically have a say in the governments. So. Um I believe, so there's a number of directions this conversation goes. The first principle is a Christian. I believe that the, the Christian faith is the foundation for all good society. And I actually believe the Christian 
um, principles are kind of throughout, embedded throughout the Constitution. The right to free speech is a Christian ideal. Hmm. It's not a Muslim ideal. <laughs> you know, it's not, it, it's not a Hindu ideal. It's a Christian ideal. You know, the freedom of religion is a Christian uh, ideal. It's a pr- Christian principle. So only in a Christian um, society can other religions, um, you know, uh, exist without being persecuted. Yeah. Only in a Christian society. The farther you get away from a Christian society, the, the more other either. Um, I got a poor connection here. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yes. The the uh, uh, the farther you get away from the Christian faith, the more persecution creeps in. The more persecution starts to happen, and that's what you see, obviously, in third world countries. Mm-hmm. So, to uh, uh, I believe the Christian faith is the best faith. It's it's not only the best faith; it's it's the true faith for actually creating a society where other people who don't believe the same way can actually experience the same freedom hmm. uh, and everything. So. There's, there's that issue there, but then also, uh, I already kind of hinted at this, that if, if we believe that the God of the Bible is the true God of the world, that Jesus died on the cross for, for the sins and, and died for the world and rose again so that, uh, um, uh, you know, I can have eternal life, that, that, that the world might be saved through Jesus. Well, I want those principles. I want those um, true laws to be, if God's law is good for me, well, God's law should be good for our society. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and again, it's important. Now, when I when someone says, "Here's God's law should be good for our society," um, uh, I'm I'm talking about how uh, the Old Testament, uh, as the Westminster Confession says, um, is looked at through the lens of general equity in the New Testament fulfillment of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. dying and rising again. Uh, and, and so if I believe God's law is good, then I think it should be good for society. Yeah. Now, uh, we're, it's so, there's so many directions we can go with this conversation, but I'll (laughs) I'll stop right there and and let you guide it. Yeah. I think, uh, one of the discussions that usually don't happen, um, when we talk about politics is that it doesn't just confine within the boundaries of a nation. It has, um, ramifications in terms of how, geopolitics work out and so one of the things that you mentioned about this whole idea of freedom of speech um, and the liberties that we enjoy here in the western world is that a lot of nations have adopted that from the west into their system and i can talk about um, india for example even if you look at the constitution that we have and when we have the whole idea of freedom of speech and freedom of press um, there is no denial that it was borrowed from the West and implemented within the Indian context where I grew up. Um, so I think that's something to definitely take into regard when it comes to understanding, preserving the idea of politics uh, as it works out here in the American context. Um, so so one thing that you actually uh, mentioned in your campaign platform is that uh, we have gotten into a bad habit of allowing Boise to tell us what to do. We need to work hard to keep government local uh, so we can better understand or address the issues uh, facing Latter County. Um, so what is the importance of local government? and What is wrong with Boise? Uh, would would <laughs> would you uh, would you recommend or suggest a top down uh, way of looking at influence or a bottom up, which is better? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So for those who don't know the geography of Idaho, Boise is the capital of Idaho, and Idaho has about 1.3 million uh, people, 1.5 million in the state of Idaho. Uh, Northern Idaho, which is where I live, in the city of Moscow, which is the hometown of also University of Idaho, uh, is about five and a half hours away from Boise. Hmm. And so if you were to drive from southern Idaho, from the uh, uh, border of southern Idaho all the way up to northern Idaho, it's it's probably about a 10-hour drive. So because Idaho, you know, has a chimney, gets gets real skinny at top, but you still keep going all the way to the the Canadian border. Now, the whole uh, direction of our founding and the whole principles guiding our constitution around the concept of states' rights 
is uh, had a huge influence on how each state has set up their local government structures, from governor all the way down to, you know, the mayor of your city. Hmm. Uh, that 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 the whole concept of of trying to keep politics as local as possible is why we have mayors, why we have city council, why we have county commissioners. And and if you think about it, you throw a rock in the pond. Well, what has the the, the biggest ripple from that walk going in the pond is the closest ripple. And then it gets the ripple lessens as it, as it grows out in that pond. And, and that's why it's so important to keep politics as local as possible. Hmm. People care more about how their money's spent in their own city than they care about what's going on at, in, in the capital in your state or gosh, you know, even, even what's going on in Washington, DC, you hmm. have more influence and more control over what's going on locally. Your vote matters more. Your your uh, petition to the mayor matters more. In fact, you can actually talk to your mayor. I can't I can't set up an appointment with my governor. I gotta drive six hours hoping I get an appointment with our governor. Yeah. You know, we can't set up an appointment with the president you know, President Trump. You just can't unless you're connected and really important. And and so that's why politics should remain local. But there's also a, a kind of a, a biblical uh, um, well, there's a couple of biblical principles that I'm alluding to through all this, mm-hmm. you know, uh, responsibility, uh, what you, you know, what you can have an influence on all those things. But there's also another biblical principle that's not talked about that much. And that's the law of lesser magistrates. Yeah. So lesser magistrates, uh, is, is a concept where the, the lesser magistrate has a duty to stand up to a higher magistrate. Let's say like my mayor has a duty to stand up to the governor. If, the governor is overstepping its constitutional bounds or if the governor is starting to become tyrannical, which is happening in California literally right now. Uh, and, and so there's a duty from the lesser magistrate to protect their people from the higher magistrates. And so what that does is that that puts all sorts of accountability and responsibility in the local people to Hmm. support godly men to become political leaders to be able to exercise that courage, courageous stance and being able to protect you from tyranny. Yeah. And this is deep, one of the principles that drove the American war for independence. Hmm. So it, it was, it was their duty. It was uh, the, our founders duty. They saw it as their duty to protect from the tyranny of King George. That's why the declaration of independence was drafted. So, yeah. Um, uh, and this is not foreign to what we see in, in the scriptures. Uh, we find it uh, time and again how lesser magistrates have uh, fulfilled their role uh, by not submitting to uh, what was not godly and against God's law. Um, so uh, l- let me ask you this. Uh, with regards to church, local church, and if we, if we uh, translate this very idea of being focused on local governance and how important that is in terms of our engagement to see a change in, in, uh, in a bigger scale, um, how does that reflect in terms of our uh, engagement or being part of a local church instead of going after big changes that we want to see uh, through Christendom or big religion? Yeah. So one of the blessings and glories of being a Christian is that you are following a God who's faithful and just and who he will bring about all justice, whether you see justice happen here on earth or at the end of all things. God's Mm going to bring everyone to account for all, which is scary, for all their sins. Uh, God's going to bring everyone to account for everything. And so there's this final just, justice that I know God's going to bring. Now, um, with, with, that, with that said, when as Christians, our, our most important duty here on earth is to worship God. Worship is central to who we are in Christ. Hmm. And so that's why Sunday is so important for us. The world, um, uh, you know, works seven days. The world works six days. And, and rest on the seventh, what I want to do is I want to worship and rest on the first day and let that flow throughout the week in hard work. Yeah. So I orient everything I do around Sunday. And when we do that rightly, that God, when we worship God rightly in spirit and truth, that's how God changes the world. We often think that uh, we need to have a 
a a wildly successful evangelistic ministry on the streets or the abortion clinic or you know in the at the college campus crusade you know whatever all those are important i'm not i'm mm-hmm. not knocking that but the, the most uh important um uh the most important uh, act a christian does is worshiping god on sunday it's a political act it's a it's a life-changing act it's a family building act. It, it, it worship changes everything. Mm-hmm. And if and if we aren't seeing God on Sunday, God is not going to act. Yeah. And what's happened is is we flipped everything upside down, and we think, oh, you know, we need to have a sexy church planting ministry, or we need to, uh, you know, have a uh, an awesome evangelism uh, ministry on the college campuses. And that's actually a secondary issue, but church actually is, I think kind of believes that it's kind of a primary issue evangelism. Hmm. Um, but it's, but it's no, it's, it's worshiping God on Sunday first and then let your evangelism, then let your church planning, then let everything flow from that. Fathers have been tricked. Pastors have been tricked into thinking that, uh, you know, church planning is sexy and not changing diapers at home. Hmm. You know, church, church, uh, evangelism on college campus, is important, but not discipling your 10 year old boys, hmm. you know, so we've been, uh, moved, we've been maneuvered. We're going after flashy things, uh, that are distracting us from the most important thing that we need to be doing. And that's raising our family and knowledge of the Lord and worshiping God on Sunday. And if you get that correct, uh, you know, it, it, it's just becomes a numbers game. Yeah. If, if you're discipling your family, well, if you, if the church is discipling, it's congregation well, well, the world is killing itself away. The world is aborting, you know, babies by the millions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there are, and Christians are doing abortions also. I don't want to, uh, you know, cover that fact up at all. But, but if we're faithful, uh, you know, um, godlessness is fruitlessness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, atheism is, is death. And, and if you're faithful over time, that's how God changes the world. Um, is through your faithful um, participation in worship on Sunday morning and God acts that. You look at, it's, it's amazing to me that we have more Christian churches, uh, uh, you know, on, especially back in Texas. You go back to Texas and there's a, it's like Starbucks. There's a church on every corner. Hmm. How is it that the LGBT community, which makes up about max 3% of our population, is getting all the Supreme Court victories, getting all the affirmative action victories, getting all the, uh, you know, corporations to uh, throw a gay pride month for them in June. And church, there's about 40 million, 45 million evangelicals here in the U.S. There's maybe 3 million homosexuals. Yeah. And, and, but, but the LGBT community, it, the alphabet people, or they're getting their way, and the church cannot aff- impact culture. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't you say that it's also because they position themselves in the place of influence? Their influence was more as a minority was more from top down rather than bottom up, um, uh, which is kind of different from what we are saying here in terms of the importance of uh, how I conduct my family life, how I conduct my church life and how I conduct um, my participation in the community and what happens um, so w- would you say there, there is a need for us to consider both in terms of being, as, as you are running, uh, you, you have a campaign for uh, county commissioner. We do need people positioned in the place of influence. At the same time, there has to be this mass movement of people understanding and recognizing God's call for both family, for their church, and for the government. If, there, if there's anything that this whole COVID crisis is showing us, is how the, is that the church thinks worshiping God on Sunday is non-essential. Hmm. That the church believes they are unessential, and that the that the government is the only essential organization here in the U.S. So um, the reason why we don't have influence is because the the church doesn't believe in what they're doing. The church doesn't believe that worship is essential. Uh, you know, I mean, the reason why we don't have reformation and revival is because uh, we need actually reformation and revival in the church first. Hmm. The the pews need to be lit on fire. The, the, you know, the, the pastor's sermon needs to be lit on fire. It, 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 and, and so, yes, we need to have a 
people who we have need to have a good base of Christians in our society. And yes, we need to have Christian leaders who are running for county commissioner, or running for mayor, running, you know, getting involved in office. That's that's important. We, you know, yeah. God, we need to touch every area of life with our gifts and abilities as God has called us. Uh, we need, you know, we need plumbers just like we need polit- Christian politicians. We need, uh, you know, God has designed and built the world in such a way that Christians should be taking dominion over every area of life that God has gifted them and called them to. Hmm. But, but the reason why we don't have an impact, the reason why we can't change culture, the reason why culture is influencing us, it's rubbing off on us, it's going the wrong way, hmm. is because we don't believe worship is central and 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 we don't and, and that we're non-essential in this whole business and and the COVID pandemic has shown that clearly. Yeah, and I think um, there is uh, this kind of attitude towards culture is also because of. Uh, a wrong kind of um, uh, division between the gospel and culture. Uh, we think them to be separate. Rather, I think there's a need for us to actually be teaching that gospel is culture. It matters what I do on Sunday must have some sort of impact in terms of when I step out of my home on Monday, uh, that it would show uh, in terms of uh, fruits of the gospel that would be, um, uh, you know, uh, that may come through the work that we do. So, yeah, there is definitely a, a, a kind of like two world uh, idea in the brain, in the minds of people where they think that gospel must be kept private and they just need to confine it within how they conduct their family. Whereas when it comes to culture, they have no engagement uh, or necessary engagement uh, with that. So, yeah, no, yeah. we've created distinctions that are not biblical. Yeah, and the church is a walking contradiction. On a, on a lot of these areas, you know, you're, um, we should, why would we not want to apply the gospel to every area of our lives? Hmm. Why would we not want to apply the gospel to our family, to my time at work, away from my family, to our vacation time, to our political offices? Yeah. <laughs> the gospel is the solution. And yet the church has been hesitant to take that solution, to take the cure hmm. and apply it to every area of life, every person that's sick, every institution that's sick. Uh, and, and the church has really, I think, been intimidated and kind of cowed away from doing that. Hmm. And, and, the, and the church is kind of, I think, I, I just don't think there's any other way to describe it, but that the church has lost faith in the confidence of what God, what the power of the gospel means to every area of our lives. Yeah. Um, if I may ask, what are a couple of key issues or just one or two uh, uh, issues that you think are right on top in terms of uh, when you uh, get elected, and I hope you do, uh, that you will tackle? Uh, and also speak into you know, uh, the whole unrest concerning Black Lives Matter protest in Moscow uh, and also the division in the church between conservatives and liberals, Christians regarding the whole issue of race. Uh, that's a really good question. So maybe even back up a little bit from there too. I'm running for county commissioner in, in Lataw County, and county commissioner is just kind of like an administrative position in a county, at least in our state. Some okay. states are a little structured a little differently. Mm-hmm. There's three county commissioners and together. They're kind of like the mayor of the county. So, uh, well, kind of like the mayor and the city council of the county. So we are not only are we administrative, but we all vote. And so we oversee kind of the administrative aspects of the county, which would include like this Lataw County Sheriff and his office and his deputies, hmm. you know, the county courthouse, you know, stuff, stuff like that. So uh, I think kind of two basic things I would like to see accomplished as county commissioner. One, one would be our county commissioners have raised our property taxes four years in a row. Hmm. Uh, you know, stop, stop the taxation madness. And now they're trying to find ways for the, the government to bail them out uh, through the whole COVID crisis. And they're trying to find ways to, to dampen the, the four years of raising our taxes and what it has done to our mm. County. Our County is the second highest County in the state of Idaho. And we're this odd mix of farm and ag and university academia. And so it really, um, so the, the, the taxation madness needs to stop. Secondly, uh, you know, I would, I would like, to hopefully live out and demonstrate what a principled politician uh, and how they should govern, how they should talk and how they should speak and how they should uh, um, lead. Hmm. We don't have principled political leaders, um, even in our state. I mean, our governor on March 25th here in Idaho shut down 
the economy in Idaho. He told businesses that it is it'll you you cannot open. It is illegal if you open, and it's and that's like and, and on top of this, he kept taking his state governor's paycheck. Our local county commissioners kept taking their county commissioner paychecks hmm. when the politicians shut down all these businesses. So we've gotten so far away. We're we're supposed to be a conservative state here in Idaho. Hmm. Our governor is supposed to be conservative. And he's abandoned all those conservative principles and shut down our state. And, and at the same time, he himself would not submit to those same standards. You know, how did we get to a point in, in this world where, the, where a governor of a state can tell you that you're, you, can, you need to stop? I demand you to stop making money for your family. And I'm going to keep my, my governor's salary. Hmm. That's absolutely wicked. Yeah. That is, that is – Jesus has all sorts of words for people – who create double standards and lord over their people. Hmm. That's what's going on. And so I, I would I would love to hopefully be a godly example of what a a, a a Christian leader who has conviction uh, and, and has a bully pulpit to to be able to hopefully uh, encourage, teach, exhort its citizens for to you know learn and and work towards a good and wonderful society instead of all this mandating that's going on. You know, I mean, it's like our governor, um, right now we, we, our mayor, our local mayor has mandated everyone to wear a mask. If Mm -hmm. you can't social distance, you got to wear a mask. And, and yet the world makes fun of Leviticus. (laughs) I, I far, I much, I would much rather have the, the legalism of the Levitical code over Mm -hmm. our mayor's mask mandate right now. So next time, next time the world makes fun of Leviticus and and, and you know the church being legalistic, yeah, it, it, they're going to get a huge horse laugh because look what you you have to wear a mask if you aren't six feet away from someone. Hmm. A cousin, a, a cousin in our community, two cousins walking down the street in our community have to wear masks. Cousins, if you can't, if you aren't wearing a mask, you will get fined, you will get ticketed, and you could yeah. go to jail. Hmm. And our resolution here in our town, our resolution that our mayor wrote. That you can get arrested for not wearing a mask, and specifically stated in the resolution is that you can go to jail where you don't have to wear a mask. Hmm. You have to wear a mask in prison, so you get arrested for not wearing a mask and go to jail where you don't have to wear a mask. It's absolutely the the principles that our politicians uh, actually there's 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 it's all baseless. There's no guiding principles that our politicians are using to make the decisions that they're that they're uh, making. You know the whole social distancing thing. Uh, that is not scientific. There's no scientific studies to pr- prove social distancing works. In fact, that whole concept came from a high schooler out of Sandia, New Mexico hmm. back in, I think, 2006. It was a high school project she was working on, and, and that whole concept of social distancing came from a high schooler. Now, high schoolers can come up with good ideas or whatever, but it, uh, that's not the point. The point is, is that it's not scientific, it's not proven, it came from a high schooler, and yet every governor is saying, we're using science to make our decisions right now. And you are not. You know, regarding uh, face masks, uh, there's, uh, I don't, first of all, any face mask surgery that has come out, any face mask study, excuse me, surgery, any face mask study that's come out during the pandemic, I don't believe. It's politicized. I, you know, I, I don't believe you one bit. So pretty much any study on face masks that's come out since, you know, let's say February of 2020, just throw it in the trash. Hmm. There's been all sorts of historical scientific face mask studies going back to, you know, the 90s, even the 70s. Uh, and and there's uh, there's been some studies that have found that wearing cloth face masks actually increase your tra- the probability of getting a transmission, increasing your probability of getting a virus. Hmm. And and it's because what it is is it's just a piece of cloth around your mask. Which by the way, the reason why I'm, I'm picking on cloth masks is because this is the majority mask that everyone's wearing in Idaho, in California. It's the majority mask, cloth mask. Uh, and and that study found that it increased your transmission increase the probability of getting the virus and everyone's wearing this mask yeah and and these studies are 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 indicating that the, that this is a reality for masks and yet all these politicians are saying wear a mask and they don't even care what kind of mask you're wearing and you could actually put yourself in more harm's way being forced to wear a mask wearing the wrong kind of mask which is what everyone's doing right now hmm sorry mike i got all worked up i hit my mic <laughs> it's, it's it's good it's good yeah uh, yeah um so, so if I may ask uh, now, 
we have all these challenges around us. Everything kind of like looks like um, going downward. Uh, there's nothing that seems like, you know, uh, working out. I mean, uh, so in light of all that, uh, what are your reasons to stay optimistic about future? And not just that, uh-huh. uh, I would ask, uh, you know, your first thoughts uh, in terms of like, if someone is interested to get into politics or political career, uh, what would be your recommendation? What hope should they have in terms of future when everything looks so bleak, um, challenging, and seems like we don't have a solution? Or can, we can come to a, a consensus in terms of how to tackle these challenges facing us. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple layers to this, to this question. Um, I'll start here. Spurgeon said that if, if he knew that Jesus was going to come tomorrow, Someone asked, someone asked Spurgeon, hey, what, you know, what, do you, what, what would you do today if Jesus came tomorrow? And Spurgeon said, well, I'd plant a tree. Hmm. So regardless, and I want to apply this specifically to, yeah, times look bleak right now. You've got our, our government, seems like um, God has given the crazy pill to our government. And, and so it, 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 nothing feels stable. There is, uh, you know, there's serious division in our country, not just racial division, but serious political division. So, yeah, I think things don't look very good right now. But that doesn't matter in one sense because I know my marching orders as a Christian. Hmm. So the glory of having a godly father is that he tells me what to do, and I obey him faithfully to the best of my ability, and I let, I let all the chips fall where they may. Hmm. Um, so it takes a lot of stress off me. It takes a lot of, you know, I can't, I'm not sovereign over the world. I didn't predestine all this. You know, uh, uh, my, my job is to obey God and trust in him. So there's kind of this Bible 101 question, uh, answer there. Secondly, the Bible teaches that Jesus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and that he's orchestrating all this. Uh, he, he, he turns the King's hearts, right? He, um, he gives pills to our Kings, <laughs> you know, hmm. uh, Jesus is Lord over. Everything. And, and, and I know because he's Lord over everything, because he's died and rose again from the dead, because he conquered sin and death, that the gospel wins in this world. Yeah. The gospel, you, you can't stop. Uh, the, the God who created everything, you can't stop the God who died on the cross, the God who rose again, the God who defeated Satan. You can't stop what he's doing through the gospel. Hmm. And so even though times you know, like this might look a little bleak, we know in the end that Jesus is king and the gospel actually wins. The gospel yeah. actually, um, it, you know, when we pray, our Father in art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We're, we're praying yeah. for God's kingdom to come to this earth. We're praying for his will to be done. And we're praying that the gospel, you know, touches everything like the waters covers the sea, like the sand on the seashore. And we know that the power of the gospel, it, you know, Romans chapter one, that the power of the gospel goes out and changes hearts. Yes. And, and at the end of this, at the end of all this, when you're, when we've converted the city of Moscow, when you've converted the state of California, when, when the gospel conquers uh, you know, uh, uh, a city, a, a state, a nation, uh, we know that that's the telos, that's the end goal of what Jesus is doing, reigning at the right hand of God the Father. Mm-hmm. Um, I have just a couple of questions more for you, uh, Gabe. Um, what are you reading these days? And is, is there anything that you would recommend uh, to our listeners? Uh, and also, please share, um, uh, if someone wishes to connect with you and your ministry, how can they do that? Yep. Yep. So right now, um, I'm actually reading back through liberal fascism, uh, with, uh, Jonah Goldberg. Um, I just, uh, um, uh, I'm uh, chapter, I just finished chapter four, chapter three and four are pretty, um, eye awakening, uh, hmm. awakening. So liberal fascism, I'm, I'm reading this, uh, devotion that Spurgeon, Spurgeon found this pastor, Charles Spurgeon found this pastor who was not a well-known pastor, uh, and uh, listened to a lot of his sermons and, and really just really liked this pastor and wasn't very well known. Well, what Spurgeon did was he took a lot of his sayings and put it into one book, kind of hmm. a lot of his devotions and put them in one book. It's a really fantastic book. I'm actually um, uh, forgetting the name of it uh, now. I'm just drawing a blank. Um, but uh, so it's really uh, like the guy is really poetic. This pastor is really poetic, really yeah. well written. Uh, I'm really enjoying that. It's kind of a, more of a devotional kind of, kind of scripture. And then also, I guess, in just in terms of, um, I, I, because I host a political show, we air uh, two times a week on Wednesday at 10 a.m., uh, usually live, and then on Sunday night at 7 p.m. Uh, uh, Pacific time. So I'm constantly 
reading um, news, um, uh, you know, articles, videos, staying up on what's going on in the presidential election. Hmm. And um, so, that, yeah, I mean, I'm constantly reading stuff. So when everyone asks me that question, I'm like, well, I'm reading all sorts of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and people, people can follow us. Our, our website is crosspolitic.com, www.crosspolitic. That's cross, mm-hmm. you know, politic. Dot com. Also, you can follow us. We have a whole kind of podcast network that we started called the Fight Laugh Beast Networking. Go to fightlaughbeast.com. We got a baseball podcast on there. It's fantastic. Mark Dewey, Law and Profits with Marcus Pittman, A.D. Robles. Uh, we just got a great, you know, the, 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 the Patriarchy, the Pugcast. We just got a great lineup on our network. So Great. Wow. Uh, well, thank you so much, brother. I really appreciate you giving us your time. I know it was a busy day for you today being with the Chamber of Commerce, uh, talking to them and all. Um, really appreciated what you're doing in Moscow, Idaho, and we pray that God would uh, use you in the coming days even more. Uh, Thank you, Jacob. Thank you for having me on, man. I really appreciate it, brother. You've blessed us. Thank you. Uh, while we may be witnessing the embodiment of a predominantly materialistic framework uh, in our public square, um, we as Christians have a clear mandate to see this as an opportune time and to have a prophetic witness in our community, in our family, and also including in our political sphere. Um, and to be a prophetic witness is one of, uh, in our culture, would be to mess with people's sensitivity sometime and make decisions to perhaps stand alone for the truth. Uh, here at Equal Justice, we hope that you will join hands with us to seek truth, value tradition, and fight to defend the foundations of a moral and just society. We want to thank you for joining us today. God bless.